Hello and welcome to this sixth episode of the CoLab Cast from our studios in Clearwater, Florida. I'm Executive Director Christina Baker, and I'm super excited to share today's guest with you, so let's jump on in. Today we have retired New York City policeman and author Vic Ferrari. Or is that your real name? It's a pen name. But thank you, Christina, <laughs> for having me on your show. I really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. We're, we're pumped that you're here. You. Um, I see that you have five books that you've written post-police career. Yes. Or during? No, no, post. Post? Okay. So give me a little bit of background. Um, where are you from? I'm a Bronx kid, born and raised in New York City. Um, by the, when I was about five years old, I knew what I wanted to do in life. My grandfather had broken his leg, and two New York City policemen brought him home in a snowstorm. And I'm sitting there, and I'm going, who are these guys? What do they eat? They've got the blue uniforms on and the gold buttons, and <laughs> every boy is attracted to gun. And then a, little, a year or two later, there was a um, movie theater in my neighborhood around the corner from a police station. And every time my mother would take me to a Saturday matinee, I'd run up to the police cars and look in the windows and see the equipment. I'd watch the cops standing in front of the precinct, how they interacted, the way they'd sit there, with, stand with their hand on the butt of their gun, and just the way they interacted. And I said, that's what I want to do. So by seven years old, the only thing that mattered to me was becoming a New York City police detective. And I grew up watching the Rockford Files. I'm a child, you know, the 70s Rockford Files, the French Connection, the Seven Ups, all these police shows. And most of them are based in New York City. So it just it just fueled the fire. That is amazing. And very few people know what they want to do that early on. So that that's really cool. I was lucky. Yeah. So education-wise, walk me through that. So my parents, I, I went to New York City public school system to eighth grade. And uh, just before, about a year before I was going to go into high school, my dad said, pick a Catholic high school. I says, well, we're Catholic, but we don't even go to mass. And he goes, well, you're a clown. <laughs> and if you go to Lehman High School, which is a public school in our neighborhood, he goes, you're going to be a bigger clown. So pick a high school that's run by the men in black and deal with it. So I wasn't thrilled with it, but looking back, going to Catholic high school and then the New York, I was a wild kid. So going to Catholic high school and then going into the New York City Police Department, both of those things put a lot of structure into my life. My parents were supportive of me becoming a police officer, but they didn't want me to put all my eggs in one basket. Mm. So try as they might, they tried pushing me towards going to college and my dad wanted me to get into the electrician's union, but I would have none of it. I, I knew what I wanted to do, and I just kept pushing forward. That's that's cool. So right from high school into the police academy. So you were 18? No, there was a couple of rough years because it's funny you should say that because I really – I wasn't interested in really having a full-time job. I wanted to be a police officer, and my parents wanted to kill me because it was like, catch me, catch me if you can. I'd leave the house with one job and then come back with another. I worked in an auto parts store. I cleaned airplanes at LaGuardia airports on midnights. I unloaded trucks for UPS. I got a job as an exterminating company. I lied to the guy, and I told him I had experience, and the guy liked me. Then he called my old employer, who wasn't my old employer, and he's like, who is this guy? He's really, why did you let him go? And he goes, I have no idea who the hell you're talking about. So when I went, showed up for work one day, he goes, Vic, who are you? I called this exterminating company. He doesn't know who you are. So I, I kind of got myself into a couple of jams that way. But I, I had, you know, a lot of part-time jobs in that little time yeah. period between 18 and 21 when I, ultimately I went into the police academy. Okay. All right. And how long was the police academy? 
back then. Times have changed, but um, when I went in 1987, it was six months. Six months. Do you remember a lot of that time? I do. Yeah. Uh, I Actually, I was just on the phone with a buddy of mine who sat next to me in the police academy. Do they do physical tests in that? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a physical test to pass as well as, um, uh, you know, a, a litany of psychological exams to, to take and pass to become a police officer. Yeah, every day they had gym. Um, and you were taught self-defense and push-ups, you know, sit-ups, climbing fences, running laps and laps and laps a day. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was far from Navy SEAL training. Right. But they wanted you in shape once you graduated. Yeah. So what year was that? 1987. 87. Okay. And then you graduated from the academy and then you got a job immediately? Oh, yeah. Soon. As, yeah, it's different. So, okay. In New York, you're, when they say you're hired, you're hired. You, you, you belong to them. So right after the police academy, they send you out to field training. Down here, it's a little different. You go through a police academy, then you have to sell yourself. Basically, right. you got to go to different police departments. Yeah. So, no, in New York, once you're hired, they're paying for the police academy and everything else, and then you go, I was sent up to the South Bronx. Okay. Yeah, that's very different from, from down here. Interesting. Uh, how did your family feel about all of this? Certainly, it was not a secret to them uh, since you wanted, wanted to do this forever, basically, but, uh, you know, still... I know they didn't want all your eggs in one basket, but obviously you chose differently. So once you made that choice and were hired, then what happened? Well, they were relieved. I mean, because their biggest fear was the NYPD wouldn't call or maybe I wouldn't get hired. And then what? You know what I mean? He missed the opportunity to go to college. Uh, You know, he's not a carpenter. He's not an electrician. (laughs) He's not. He doesn't work for one of the utilities. Now now what do we have here? But I did. So they were relieved. They were all. Throughout my career, they were always nervous. Like, my dad would pick my brain all the time about things he saw on the news and stuff. And they were nervous, but they knew I could handle myself. But, no, they were fine with it. Okay, so you graduate, you get the job, you start work. What is your first day like? Well, back then, it was a little different than now. So, in field training, you would go to a field training unit where you were assigned. It was usually, per field training unit, there was probably 20 cops. And rookie cops are like puppies. They have no idea what's going on, even though they were in the police academy. And back then, what they would do is they would drop you off on foot posts around different precincts in the South Bronx. And basically, it was baptism by fire. You had to figure things out. So my first couple of days, I was in the 4-8 precinct, and they dropped me off like over on Fulton Avenue, which back then was all burned out and abandoned buildings. And I'm standing around, and there's crackheads walking by <laughs> with stuff they stole, trying to sell, even sell stuff to me. Hey, could you use a watch? I'm like, get the hell out of here. But you really didn't know what to do with yourself. But after a while, you started figuring things out. So... You know, I'm standing there looking at the same abandoned building for three days, and then I realize, like, in the afternoon, the way the sun starts setting over the Bronx, the light comes through the abandoned buildings because there's no windows in it, and then I could see people inside, crackheads in there. So then I'd go in, I'd go into the abandoned building and maybe make an arrest for trespass or a drug sale. So you start figuring things out, and then you f- start figuring things out. You're not as um, nervous dealing with people on disputes because, think about it, at 21 years old, you're not really... You really don't have a lot of life experience, right. how to read people, how to deal with things. So it took me a while. And after that six months, I was assigned to the 4-2 precinct, which if you've ever seen the movie Fort Apache, the Bronx with Paul Newman, it's, it's a big 1980s movie. They actually filmed that in my precinct, which was all burnt out at the time. So little, um, 
Fort Apache was then called Little House on the Prairie because there was nothing <laughs> around. It was all burned out. Okay. So back to the uh, crackheads for a minute. <laughs> um, did you guys have quotas to make arrests? No. Okay. They didn't want – actually, before Giuliani, it was, it was quite the opposite. They did not want street cops making drug sales or drug arrests or possession of drug arrests. If you walked into the station house, I remember a couple of times getting yelled at as a young cop like I'd see – a crackhead drop a couple of vials of crack or I'd see somebody smoking crack or somebody shooting heroin and I'm young and I, you know, lock mm-hmm. the guy up and I'd walk into the station house and like, what are you doing? <laughs> what? Give this guy a summons. Get, get him out of here. Like, they, they did not want that. It was quite the opposite. Yeah, because there were so many. And <laughs> The NYPD is, they're very good with corruption, believe it or not. The thing is, they're paranoid about it and the Back then, the the, um, the logic was they did not want street cops getting involved with drug arrests. They wanted narcotics to handle narcotics. Gotcha. Okay. There was more supervision with that. Okay. Okay. Ooh. Was it scary? Oh, I can honestly say I was never scared. I mean, a couple of times it got hairy during car chases, but no, was I ever really scared scared? Nervous a couple of times. Or, yeah. You ever almost been in a car accident? Yeah. Like, you just, you, you almost... You, in- <laughs> The car goes roaring by, blowing the horn, and you're like, all right, I'm fine. Yeah. But then it's like about five seconds later, you know what I mean? You're, yeah. you're kind of having heart palpitations. So, yeah, that happened a bunch of times. But was I, you know, scared of something that I wouldn't do something? No. Okay. So what year did you retire? 2007. I did 20. Okay. In that time period, uh, mental illness, I think, became more... Was talked about it more. Was talked about more. So, did you go through any kind of continuing education with regards to that? The all okay. So after nine eleven, the clo- I I, I kind of understand the question. So after nine eleven, probably six months or a year of nine eleven, they were afraid that that was going to creep in, and guys and women are going to start having problems mm-hmm. with that. So what they what they would do is they would pull us like an office of 20, 30 people at a time. And then it was kind of like a group therapy. But you've got to understand the mindset of a police officer, especially up there. Um, The NYPD is almost like the Stasi. And any signs, even if you, you know, any signs of someone having a problem, the first thing they do is they take your gun and shield away from you and they put you on a shelf. And nobody wants that. Now, some people need that, obviously. <laughs> but then there's other people that just want to talk to somebody. And then the next thing you know, they're pulled from their unit. They take their guns and they're watching feral cats over at the Whitestone Pound. Mm. So nobody really wants that. And once you get put into one of those categories, they're not quick to put you back. So you can languish somewhere. You know, you had a problem to begin with, and now you've defeated this problem where you're better, and nobody wants to make that decision to give you your gun and your ID back. So you're on the shelf for years sometimes. Wow. Was that constantly on your mind? No, because no. I knew there was nothing wrong with yeah. it. Yeah. You know, they yeah. would call it the funny now, this is the funny thing. So they would call us into these group therapy things. I think I went to three or four. They were mandatory. And we're just sitting around with all these counselors, and these are good people. They, they, they really, you know, they, they want to help us. But the thing is, like, by the time 9-11 rolled around, I had 13 or 14 years in. 
I had seen so many horrific things. Not that anything I could have done or seen before that could have prepared me for what I saw down at Ground Zero. But by that point in my life, I knew how to handle things. I was already in my, my mid-30s. Mm. Um, I knew, and cops com- compartmentalize things. You have to. Because if you didn't let things go, you'd become a complete basket case. Mm. So by that point, I mean, I was fine. It was terrible. I thought about it, but I was fine. But then you've, you've got a bunch of co- paranoid cops sitting around a room with a bunch of guidance counselors they don't know. It was like an awkward uh, high school social in freshman year. It's like, how you doing? How you doing? You're like, they, they weren't getting anything out of anybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, have you ever discharged your weapon in the line of duty? No, I have not. I'm lucky. Taser? We didn't, we didn't have tasers. Well, they had them. They didn't want us to use them. Uh-huh. So you never really saw them. We heard the sergeants carried them once in a while. Yeah. Like down here in Florida, they hand them out like candy. But, <laughs> but up in New York, no, we never, because uh, I was a cop down here. We'll get to that. Okay. Is it normal for a police officer to go through an entire career and not discharge his weapon? Is that normal? Oh, sure. That's normal. Listen, I've got a ton of friends that were involved in gunfights that have killed people that have mm-hmm. been shot. It's just the luck of the draw. you got to look at it like the New York City Police Department at any given time has between 35 and 40,000 members. So wow. that's like a good that's – a, that's Yankee Stadium on a Friday night in the summer. So, I mean, the odds of you getting into a gunfight – I've come very close to killing a couple of people. But, I mean, it just – the circumstances changed in that split second. I mean, I almost shot a crackhead one time. We got flagged down by this guy – well, actually – we didn't get flagged down by him. We got flagged down, and this guy is running around cars, and his girlfriend is like this 90-pound waif, but she's got a butcher knife, a carving knife. And, you know, there's a difference. You know, I've seen people, like, trying to get their point across. She was putting her weight into it, really trying to get him. Wow. I mean, really trying to get this guy. And they're running around cars, and, I mean, it was like everybody clears out. We're telling her to stop. We're telling her to stop. I jump out with my sergeant. The victim if you want to call him that, runs in back of my sergeant and starts climbing on his back. And here she comes. Oh, my God. She's coming with that knife, and it happened in a blink of an eye. And I just, this is when we had the 38s. I'm just starting to lower that gun. I'm just going to hit her. And at the last possible second, this guy that I still keep in touch with to this day, thank you, Ernie. If, look, you ever see like an NFL quarterback? He's just about to make that throw, <laughs> yeah. and he gets blasted. Like he never yeah. saw it coming, and the yeah. ball coming out of his hand, like what happened to Tom Brady, yeah. and that was a fumble. Um, <laughs> my friend, who's a big guy, just blasted her, and the knife came out. The knife went like a fumble. The knife hit the ground and bounced down the street. We get her in handcuffs, right? We put her in the back of the radio car. Then the boyfriend doesn't want to press charges. And my sergeant now is so mad right. because this guy climbed on his yeah. back, brought this woman yeah. to him that was going to probably, in all probability, nick him up, too, or sure. maybe even kill him. And now he doesn't want to press charges. <laughs> so while we're meeting – now, this is in the summer, so the back window is down. The, the police car that she was in, the two guys, they were kind of knuckleheads. They weren't paying attention. She's rear cuffed behind her back. And the next thing you know, you see her going out the back window like a contortionist with her mm-hmm. hands rolled behind her back. She falls out the back window with a radio call, lands on her head, gets up and starts running down Kingsbridge Road. We're all laughing because she's not going to get very right. far. So we grab her and drag <laughs> her back. And, you know, I think she went to Bellevue. Remember, so this is like 30 years ago. Just another day at the office. Yeah. yeah. It, that, stuff like that used to happen all the time. Um, have you ever saved a life? Oh, plenty. 
Plenty. Um, the two that come to mind was one time it came for uh, came over as um, children playing on a roof or a dispute on a roof. We go up to the roof and there's a boy about 14 years old. He was with his friends and he drank so much alcohol that his body, like alcohol poisoning, he mm -hmm. shut down. So I carried the kid downstairs, threw him in the radio car, bring him to the hospital. And I remember asking the nurse, is he going to make it? And she goes, I don't know. She goes, he's in bad shape. And mm -hmm. he made it. A couple of months later, I'm driving by the kid's building, and he's in front of the building, and I tell the kids to leave, and he's being a smartass. I go, you don't remember me, do you? And he goes, who are you? I says, I'm the guy that saved your life. And he goes, oh, you were on the roof? I said, yeah. And then he changed his tune. <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, another guy I saved, there was a spot in the Bronx where we used to pick off guys stealing cars all the time. It was, um, you have the last stop of a train station. Then you have a, a straightaway of road, and on one side you have a cemetery. The other side you have a, uh, a park, a forest area. So commuters would get off from Westchester County and park their cars along this mile, mile and a half strip and walk and get on the train. But there's no one around, and this is pre-cell phones. So if you're a car thief, you just get off the last stop of the train, walk up there, and jump into a car. So my partner and I are driving by looking for car thieves, and I see some guy slumped down behind the steering wheel. So I'm like, look at this, he's busting the steering column. We jump out, and I go, get out of the car. And he's just looking at me. I says, get out, right? I pull the guy out of the car, and I could smell alcohol. I go, he's drunk. And I'm like, he's not drunk. He was going through diabetic shock, and sometimes when someone's going through diabetic shock, there's a, your body starts emitting what smells like alcohol. Wow. So we called the paramedics. They came and they put this like blue toothpaste, I guess it's glucose in his mouth. That did nothing. And then they started running IVs through him. And then all of a sudden he came to life and uh, he was like, yeah, he goes, I, was, I got off the train. I was walking home. The last thing I remember, you guys were here. He didn't even remember getting in his car. But oh my goodness. the paramedics said if we didn't get to him in about five, ten minutes, he would have been done. Whoa. So, yeah, a couple of times I've saved people's lives. Wow. How much... Uh healthcare training do you do you get not much yeah do you, you just learn that i would imagine after being on the street for as long as you are yeah i mean in the academy they teach you cpr they mm -hmm. teach you some stuff mm -hmm. the thing is in new york there's just so much to cover yeah there's just so much to cover i mean and, and nothing they can't prepare you for everything right. they just can't things yeah. just change in a moment's notice but um yeah, you learn things. You yeah. know, you learn, you know, with I, I, a lot of, I used to call it my clients. A lot of my clients <laughs> were drug addicts, you know, car thieves. A lot of them are car, uh, drug addicts. Yeah. So I had to learn, you know, if a guy is going through um, heroin withdrawal, it's not, it, it's not going to stop the withdrawal, but it will buy you some time if you start getting sugar into them. So mm. they start, can you get me a soda? Can you get me a candy bar? And you realize they're not doing it to be a pain in the ass. They're doing it. Because if you don't get methadone into them quick, so it, it'll it'll buy you an hour of two. Hmm. Man, that is crazy. What was your schedule like? Oh, my whole career was different. Okay. Um, on patrol, I used to do four to twelves. When I was in a DWI unit, I used to come in at six at night and go home two in the morning. Mm. Auto crime division was all different for the most part. It was ten in the morning till six at night. But if we were doing a case where the thieves were stealing at night, we were working nights. It just, it just, my last 10 years as a detective was, and in narcotics, even before that, it just changed. Yeah. What are you most proud of for your career and during your career? I never got really seriously injured in 20 yeah. years. And I, I, may, I personally made over 600 arrests and I was involved in thousands. 
thousands. I mean, in narcotics, you're locking up 10, 15 guys a day. And then in the auto crime division, if I'm working with you, you take the arrest. It's not mine, but I was there. So, you know, I put handcuffs on a lot of people and I never seriously got injured. So, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm That's happy. Yeah. Yeah. Were you ever sued? No. Mm. Is that does that happen often to cops? Oh, yeah. It's yeah. ghetto lottery. Yeah. Happens all the time. Ghetto lottery. That's that's what we call it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Do you have any kids? No. If you had a kid, would you be okay with he, him or her? No. I would be like my father and try to talk about nah. it. <laughs> that's hilarious. It's history repeating itself. What changes... Uh, you mentioned Giuliani, and I, I know we said we're not going to talk politics. I have one political-type sure. question. Um, what changes did you see in shift when there was a different political person in office? So when I was hired in 87, the mayor was Ed Koch. And Ed Koch was a good man. He just didn't understand crime. He was good to the cops. He supported cops. But New York City still was – you had that funk from the 70s into the 80s. But Koch supported cops. He just didn't know how to tackle crime. Then after Koch, we had the late, great David Dinkins, who ignored it. (laughs) And that's when the city just started. We were having riots all the time. I mean, we had the Crown Crown Heights riots of 91. We had the Washington Heights riots of 92. And it just, you know, New York is a Democrat. I'm not, you know, a Democratic city. And, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. And that's why Giuliani got voted in. And Giuliani focused on quality of life crime. So like I was what I was speaking to earlier about how patrol cops were discouraged from making quality of life crimes, like just a guy with a couple of vials of crack. They didn't want it. Suddenly they said, you know what, if there's a guy loitering in a building, take him because that guy that you're grabbing for a couple of vials of crack, once he goes into the system and he's fingerprinted, guess what? He's got warrants for burglaries. Mm. Another guy you lock up for pissing on a parked car in the street or a hallway. That guy's got a warrant for a robbery. So these people, these quality of life crimes, when you're taking them into the precinct and you're fingerprinting them and you're arresting, they're wanted for other things. So now you're pulling them off the playing field. Mm. So a lot of the quality of life stuff leads to bigger and better things. The problem was after Giuliani left, the NYPD in the city of New York, but it's the NYPD more, never knew when to take its foot off the gas. Mm. You know, it's like you go for, God forbid you get cancer and you go for chemotherapy. When the doctor sees that your levels are fine, they take you off the chemotherapy. They don't keep sending you for chemotherapy. So with the NYPD, they started this thing called CompStat, which tracks criminal statistics. And then the NYPD, the powers that be, these masses of the universe, got addicted to the statistics and it became something like a fantasy football league. So then they started pulling in precinct command as well. You know, your guys locked up 100 guys last month for trespass violations. This month, you've only locked up 30. Well, the answer is the problem got solved. Mm. You know what I mean? But no, they want more. They want, they, want, they want this emphasis on statistics. But what winds up, what that does is that pisses off the community. Mm. Because, yeah, everybody's happy now. All the scumbags are off the street. But now all of a sudden, you got the cops rolling up. The super of the building, who's been calling the police and has been cooperative with the police and has been signing off on these trespass affidavits, is drinking a beer in front of his building. And then the cops roll up and give him a beer beer drinking summons. You think that guy's going to help you next time? No. No. So they never know when to take their foot off the gas. Hmm. So when those policy changes, or I guess laws change, 
how does and you don't agree with them like how difficult is that to still do your job and or do are you do you kind of look the other way sometimes with with a situation like right. you just described well, okay so it's like this it, it it rolls at the top and then it rolls to the bottom because i've worked in units where when i was in autocrime we had two great commanding officers they were great they were statesmen they knew how to handle one police plaza and they knew how to handle the detectives so they kept everybody happy. And then after they left, we got two guys that got addicted to statistics. And then it, it's um, it's like you're a musician in a band. You guys are musicians, right? Mm-hmm. It's a musician of a band shows up. He wants to play this tune. If you don't start tapping your foot to that tune, you're going to be out of there real mm-hmm. quick. Okay. You basically have to do, as long as it's legal, mm-hmm. what they want. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to switch gears a little sure. bit. Um you mentioned a partner a couple times. I've always been curious as how how do you get assigned? Are you assigned or do you kind of get depicted? Is it, what if your personalities don't match? Well, that happens all the time. Yeah. Um, okay, so when you're in an NY, well, let's go backwards. Like when you're new, mm-hmm. when a rookie cop comes to an NYPD precinct, nobody talks to you. It's um, the old timers want nothing to do with you. So. You're just kind of lost. You're walking around, and if you get in a radio call with an old-timer, as I was often told, listen, kid, don't touch that radio when I'm driving. Okay. <laughs> so basically for your first six months or if you don't figure it out a year in, you know, in, in a precinct, you're basically you're getting foot posts. You're getting all the crappy assignments. You're, you're, you're at the beck and call of what the desk officer wants. You come in. You think you're getting in a radio call. Nope. You're guarding a DOA until the medical examiner comes. Mm-mm. You have to search a DOA. Um, you have to go out a hospitalized prisoner. I remember my first week in the precinct, some woman ran to the hospital after, you know, she got off a flight, an international flight, and she had a bunch of condoms of heroin in her stomach. Mm. They had to open her up to get it out because I think one of them burst or she was experiencing abdominal pain. And the next thing I know, I'm, I'm sitting next to some woman in a hospital who doesn't speak a word of English, waiting for her to be well enough to go, to the, to go for arraignment. So... You're, you're, it's actually good for you. You hate it at the time, mm. but, but you learn, I'm not going to lose this prisoner now. You know what I mean? So it's, you learn a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, the old time is if they see that you're not a know-it-all, you're not a pain in the ass, um, they'll warm up to you. You'll start getting advice, and then they'll be nice to you when you get in the car. And then as seniority goes along, you and I are in the same squad. We get along. You know, we should partner up. Okay. Now, it's happened. I've worked with people. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, I can't work with this guy or I can't work th- with this woman anymore. It's just I can't do it. Patrol is a little easier. Once you start moving up, it gets a little dicey because, like, in the auto crime division my last 10 years, I was very active. And my lieutenant would always put the new guy with me. Now I have to find my cases and my arrests and help you out all the time, which right. I don't mind doing, but I would get saddled with people that didn't want to do their work. Mm. And my, then after six months, my lieutenant go, how is she, is she doing? I'm like, well, they're not. You know, and then he would move them somewhere else because he knew he was burning me out. But it usually in a precinct, you know, where there's a large group of people, it's easy to pick who you want to work okay. with. But th- th- when you go into specialized units, you really don't have a say as mm. to your supervisor or, or, or to your partner. Hmm. Views on no-knock warrants as a police officer. How do you feel about that? Well, I mean, I worked in the narcotics division. I, I, I think they're fine as long as – here's the problem with, with, with some of these search warrants and stuff, and I saw it in narcotics. In these specialized units where you're doing heavy work, 
kicking down doors, going after really bad people. Like, you, you know who the target is. You know something's going on in that apartment. You want people that are going with you on that warrant that, A, aren't trigger happy and aren't going to panic. And, B, if the shit does ha- hit the fan, they know what to do. Mm-hmm. They're not going to run. They're not going to cower. But you don't want the guy that's a rabid dog either, Mad Dog Cole, going through the door either, right? Because that's bad for business if somebody gets hurt. So I think no-knock wa- warrants are fine provided the people that are doing the search warrant are properly trained. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want the guy – I mean, listen – I've worked, I've known people in law enforcement that it's like Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump. <laughs> like, they're, you know, it's like, they're not going to do something illegal, but they, 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 they can't wait for the day. Like, I never wanted somebody to pull a gun on me. I never wanted to fight with a guy with a gun. Now, it happened, mm. but I wasn't looking forward to it. There's guys that that's all they do, that's all they train for, and they're a little too much. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when you go into a store, there's Comet, and then there's extra strength. Mm-hmm. I, I used to tend to stay away from extra strength. <laughs> That's great. Uh, race relations, better or worse than when you started? I worked, I mean, I worked in some of the most diverse places in the United States. I mean, I worked in Harlem. I worked in the South Bronx. I worked in Indian neighborhoods. I never had a problem with anybody. A lot of the people had problems with the police, and I used to laugh because they would call you to a dispute. And then they'd start, you know, yelling racial stuff at you. And it's like, you called me here. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't show up here. You invited me. Right. You picked up 911, <laughs> you know, after you hit your husband with a frying pan, after he punched you in the mouth. The both of you now are getting arrested. I don't see how my race factors into this. Yeah. But now you're both going to jail. Yeah. You know what I mean? I never had a problem with anybody. But, you know. Did you see that amongst your colleagues? As far as? Racism. No. Like outright, nobody was outright racist. No, everybody, I mean, 90% of the cops I worked with were from the five boroughs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like they grabbed a bunch of people from, I they mean, I not. don't want to target one specific right. place. Yeah. But, but, but <clears throat> they didn't grab a bunch of guy, white guys from Des Moines, Iowa, and throw them in a Harlem precinct, mm-hmm. and they don't know how to react mm-hmm. with black people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I took the bus across the Bronx every day. The Bronx is as diverse as it comes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like when they say, like, lily white neighborhood. I, I grew up in the Bronx. It was Everybody was mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So did you answer my question? Yeah, I think I did. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't see it. Okay. Um, so let's let's move on to your books because they look very interesting. How did you get started in that? After I retired, I was bored out of my mind, and my friends used to tell me, you got so many good stories. You should start writing this stuff down. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I was never a writer, never. Didn't, you know, take creative journalism or writing class. I didn't journal. I didn't log. And I was also nervous about writing about the police department because I didn't I, – I was always worried about what my peers would think. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though I was retired, I didn't want to lose any friends. Right. So when I started writing these NYPD books, the two things that I said I was going to do was or stick to was I I didn't want to get anybody in trouble or divorced. (laughs) So with my books, what I do is, well, you know what I mean? It's it's I'm not a sour grapes kind of person. There are people in my books that I didn't necessarily like, but I don't want to blast them. Mm. You know, I'm sure they have a different point of view from mine. So my books tend to be funny. 
they point out the irony of the things that were going on, about the interesting criminals I locked up, the characters I worked in the precinct, just the things that you would never know that would go on in an NYPD police station. And I wrote the first book, uh, NYPD Through the Looking Glass, and the reception was great. The book was selling, and all, you know, all my cop friends were starting to buy it, and, you know, oh, that's great, blah, blah. And I was like, all right, okay. Like, I was nervous. It was almost sure. like throwing a grenade and waiting to see what happened. Yeah. And the response was good. And, you know, I've just kept at it. What's your favorite book that you've read? I like them all. I think I've gotten better with each book. I think Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division, because I spent the most time there. Mm. And those stories are most personal to me because a lot of the guys that I work with and, you know, I really care about. And auto theft to me is just so interesting. That's all I ever wanted to do really is go to that unit. So, um, you know, it's like a kid. I wished on a star, and I, I got my wish. I mm-hmm. got to work in a place where, I, you know, I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. So the red one I can't say because my mom listens, but you can say it. My first book before I got into the <laughs> NYPD writing is called N- uh, Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die. It's sorry, about the, Mom. Sorry, Ma. <laughs> it's about the ridiculous things people do to shorten their life expectancy and a lot of the stories of my brother and I, just this blowing stuff up with fireworks and, just ridiculous things that people do running with the bulls in Spain. Mm. Just my take on why people run to the finish line of death <laughs> or life. Do you, did you get in any kind of trouble for the uh, the title? No, I was I was worried about that, like that it wouldn't fly. But it, it's done just it sold just fine. <laughs> Where do you sell most of your books? All of my books, basically. I mean, ninety nine percent of them are on Amazon. Amazon. Yeah, and I yeah. try to keep the poise. Uh, price point low. Mm-hmm. Keep all my paperbacks at ten and two ninety nine. Yeah, that's download. great. Yeah, I mean because my books. I mean, look, they're not War and Peace. They're two hundred and forty, two hundred and fifty pages. You can pick up any one of my books and just start thumbing through and go, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I, as you could tell, I'm a little scatterbrained. I don't write in chronological order. I'm not that accomplished of a writer, but um, yeah, they're, they're just great travel books or a beach book. Mm-hmm. They're funny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, looking back. Would you do it all over again? Oh, in spades. Yeah. If, yeah, as long as the outcome were the same. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. If I could go back to the future, yeah. So you're you're pretty young. I'm not that young. You're young. You, why did you retire when you did? Well, the NYPD offered a 20-year retirement thing, but that's not why I retired. So at 41, I was the old guy in the office. And when you're there, well, here's the thing in civil service or, or any occupation Everyone outlives their usefulness, Mm. even if you're useful, because the people around you, the people coming in have new ideas about doing things. And I always say, shame on you if 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 someone pisses in the pool and you continue to sit in it. Mm. A lot of my colleagues retired. Um, My supervisors were moving on. So there was a great turnover. The NYPD was changing. Like I spoke to earlier, they were focused on statistics and wouldn't let things go. I mean... They would have these ComStat meetings, and I would kill, like, forests in the Pacific Northwest printing pages on pages of things to give to my supervisors. So he would have the material that if he got called to the podium at one police plaza that he wouldn't be embarrassed. So it became it – w- the focus was less on enforcement but more pleasing to powers that be. And, you know, I was the old guy in the office. I really didn't have much in common at with 41. the – Yeah, at 41. That's insane. Well, think about it. If all the people coming into the office are in their 20s and 30s. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, you know, the guys that I really enjoyed working with, and I was over-training people. Mm. 
So I said, you know what? They're going to pay me to sit home, and I can do something else. Sure. I'm pretty confident in myself. I can, I can figure something else out. And, that, and that's what I did. I retired at 20 years. That's amazing. I, I read on, I think it was on Amazon, that you split your time. Do you still or do we not talk about that? No, that's fine. No, okay. what I do is each one of my books, I write something ridiculous about myself. <laughs> So in one of my books, I put when I'm not writing, I split my time between Bastardo, Italy, which I've never been to Italy, and my timeshare in North Korea. Each yeah. book, I just put something ridiculous to see, see if someone's paying attention. I, I was paying attention, at least on that one. No. Um, okay. I got to know, like, the craziest of crazy stories, like your your most favorite crazy story. Oh, God. How much time do we got? Sure. R- roll. Okay. Uh, opening ch- opening uh, chapter in NYPD Law and Disorder. It's called Embarrassing Moments, and I speak to every author who likes to p- p- paint themselves as a hero. Mm. Okay. So in the early 90s, I pull over a cab with my partner. There's three guys in the back seat with four kilos of coke. I arrest them. I walk into the station house. Everybody's like, holy shit, what is this? I'm parading around the station house like I won the Stanley Cup with four kilos of coke <laughs> on top of the world. My, my lieutenant's like packaged that shit and got it out to the lab. Like they didn't want that stuff laying around, right? So I'm all happy about myself. And I go down to court that night to write up the arrest. And I'm like, I'm hungry. You know what? I'm going to get something to eat. Now, South Bronx is not really much to eat. But across the street from the Bronx Criminal Courthouse, they had opened up this new food court. So I'm still in uniform. I go in there, and I order a veal parmesan, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I'm on top of the world. Like, this is a great arrest. Like, you know. And I'm eating, and my stomach starts to go. I'm like, oh, God, I got to go, like, now. And I'm not going across the street to the Bronx courthouse. So I'm like, oh, well, I'm in the new food court. This is great. It's a brand-new bathroom, right? I go, it's like a cathedral. I walk in there. There's no one in there. That, it's like no one's ever taken a dump in this bathroom before. I'm like, oh, this is so good, right? I go into the stall. I take off my gun belt. I hang my gun belt on the back of the bathroom stall. I drop my pants to the ground, and I get ready for liftoff. The next thing you know, the front of the bathroom, I hear, like, people coming in. The door slams open. <clears throat> Excuse me. I hear hand dryers going. The sinks are going on. It's about five or six teenagers roughhousing in the bathroom. I'm like, yeah, I'm a cop, but I'm kind of vulnerable with my pants down to my ankles, right? Then it gets quiet. So I'm like, all right, maybe they left. And I don't know what it was, but something told me to look up. As I look up, one of the teenagers went into the stall next to me, was standing on the toilet, and was reaching over to grab my gun belt off the hook. Oh. <clears throat> well, this is the Bronx. Oh my gosh. This isn't Clearwater. So I jump up with one hand, and I try to pull my pants up with one hand and grab him around the neck by the other. And when I pulled him, what do I do? I pulled him closer to the gun belt. Now he's got my gun belt. Oh. I drop my pants, and now I'm just, like, just letting him have it with my left, right? Punching, punching, punching. As I'm <laughs> punching him, he lets go of the gun belt, right? Now I got him with both hands, and I'm trying to pull him over that uh, aluminum wall like yeah. that separates stalls, which, you know, right. it's not like the Great Wall of China. And the wall is now bucking. Well, his friends run into the next stall, and they grab his legs. So now I got, like, a tug of war going with a kid <laughs> over the wall, right? But there's, like, three of them. They pull him over. The wall almost collapsed, right? He goes slamming into the next stall. Grab my gun belt, pull up my pants, put on my gun belt. I run into the food court, and they're gone. And in the book I write, like, my first reaction was to get on the radio, and I'm like, who am I going to call the police on, myself? <laughs> you know, the responding cops are going to laugh their ass off. I'm going to be the fucking laughing stock, yeah. stock of the Bronx. You know what I mean? So it was like, 
sometimes you got to eat it. And yeah. I did. And like I said, up until I wrote NYPD Law and Disorder, I never told a soul oh that story. Oh, my gosh. So there's embarrassing great. stories yeah. about things that happen to me. That is very, You want to hear funny. a bizarre story? Yeah, let's All right, go. I'll tell you the Hansel and Gretel story. Okay. Early 90s, well, late 80s, you know, I'm young, in my 20s, me and my friends after work, you do a 4 to 12, you go to a bar, we're hanging out, we're talking to girls at the bar. A friend of mine used to work with a guy, another cop that was an amateur magician. So, you know, we're talking to girls and stuff, and the magician would come over, he's a cop, and he's pulling flowers out of his sleeve, he's pulling gold coins behind the ear, I'm like, how do you compete with this? Like, he's cock-blocking us with magic. So... (laughs) My old partner, this guy, we used to call him cancer because he killed more people than cancer, worked with the magician. So I said, listen, get him the fuck out of here. Like, I can't take it. He goes, you know, he goes, you know, I wish he took his NYPD career just as seriously as he did his magic career. So anyway, a couple of months later, those two, the magician and my old partner, get called to a basement apartment in the South Bronx, and it comes over as calls for help. That's it. They go into the basement of this, this building. There's two apartments underground. So they go to door number one, and they bang on door number one. No one answers. They go to door number two. Nobody answers. Well, no, they didn't knock on door number two. My partner wanted to knock on door number two, and the magician goes, nah, come on, Frank. Just leave it alone. Frank's like, nah, I'm going to knock. Let's see. He goes, nah, come on. We made enough noise with our radios, our nightsticks. He goes, come on, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. So they leave. What they didn't know was behind door number two, the super of the building was selling coke out of the apartment. He got addicted. And he fell behind on his payments to his wholesaler. So they sent a couple of hitmen to collect. So what they did was they did it's an old gypsy trick. You get a good-looking girl and you put her in front of the door. The, guy, the super is a crackhead now. He's addicted. He sees the good-looking girl. He opens the door. They bum-rush him. Mm-mm. They start pistol-whipping him. Where's the money? Where's the coke? He doesn't have the answers. They shoot him in the head. They roll him up in a carpet. And they throw him in the furnace down in the basement. So while he's going up, they're rants- they go back to the apartment. They're ransacking it. My old partner and the magician are outside. So what they didn't know was, just as they were going to knock on the door, the three of them formulated a plan. The two hitmen told the girl who was in on it. They said, look, if those two cops knock on the door, this is what we're going to do. You let them in. It was a railroad apartment that goes straight with, a- with-, with rooms go up to the side. You start yelling in Yugoslavian and start pointing to the kitchen. Mm-mm. When you get past this threshold, throw yourself down on the floor. We're going to come around. We'll shoot the two cops. We'll kill them. We'll shoot them in the head. We'll throw them in the furnace. We'll get out of here. So obviously they never knocked on the door. And uh, the super's missing. His family starts calling the police. The detectives get involved. They see there was a 911 call to that basement apartment. They pull in my old partner, the magician. Did anything seem out of line? And my old partner said, well, the thing is, he goes, when we were leaving, we saw a car parked on the fire hydrant outside, and we gave it a parking ticket, which was the getaway car. Whoa. Same way they caught the son of Sam. So that car belonged to the girl. They brought her in. She folded. Mm-hmm. Gave up the two hitmen, trying to minimize her involvement, sure. of course. They had to go back to the building in February and shut the heat off to get the guy's teeth and bones and skull out of, out of, the, uh, out of the furnace. So that's a story from NYPD's <laughs> Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos called Last Night, A Magician Saved My Life. Because if it wasn't for the lazy magician, yeah, they'd be in the furnace. <laughs> okay. I'm hooked and uh, ready to download all five. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's some good stuff. You are a really excellent storyteller, Thank you. and I, I'm really uh, I'm impressed. And yeah, this it's good. It's fun. It's good stuff.
Thank you. What did we miss? What else do you want to hear? <laughs> um, so I've gone through all of my, you know, scripted questions. The last one is policing during 9-11. I have written down. Um, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, or? sure. Whatever. Okay. Yeah. What was it like? Well, what, huh. on 9-11, I was doing a 7 in the morning till 3 in the evening. I had locked up this guy for a bunch of stolen cars. He was sitting in jail in Manhattan, and he wanted to get out, so he wanted to become a confidential informant. So what we were going to do is we were going to set up a meeting that morning with his attorney and the district attorney. It's called Queen for a Day, which basically means they pull you out of the system, and whatever you speak to short of a homicide can't be used against you later. And we'll see if we want to use you as a confidential informant. He had this guy that was in uh, Department of Motor Vehicles that was pushing out phony driver's licenses. Mm. So I came in at 7. We were supposed to leave the Bronx office no later than 8, 8.15, because the later you wait, it's going to take a long time to get into Manhattan and find parking and everything. My sergeant's running late. And uh, he shows up, I guess, like 8.30 or something. I'm like, John, come on, we're going to be late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's farting around. I'm trying to push him. Let's go. The first plane hits the Trade Center. One of the cops from downstairs runs upstairs, just put the news on. A plane hit the World Trade Center. So we thought it was like an aviation accident. Sure. We thought it was, because you got so many airports near New York. Right. We thought it was like maybe a small Cessna or something. Well, we're watching it. The second plane hits, so we know it's terrorism. So the phone starts ringing off the hook. We're told to get into uniform. And by 1, 1.30 in the afternoon, I was down there just walking around. Like, they didn't know what to do with us, really. Like, we were just walking around. Yeah. And it was like something out of a movie because all that asbestos and blown concrete and everything. So that's raining down. It's just it's like when they, they say a volcano, you can't the sunlight really can't get through right. the particles. So it was like a weird. Um, it's like being in a fog, really. And, we, you know, we're, I think it was Broadway. We're coming down Broadway. We got all this ash all over his paperwork flying all over the place. And the one thing I will never forget is seeing thousands upon thousands of pairs of women's shoes. Because all the women that worked in the financial district, when they were fleeing, couldn't run in heels. Mm. So they all took their heels off and just dumped them. So, I mean, it was like thousands. Wow. I mean, hundreds of thousands of pairs of shoes everywhere. Mm. And um, there was, it was there's just crazy, indiscriminate stuff going on. Like some guy in a spacesuit walked by us with a Geiger counter. I'm like... Fuck is this guy? Like, did the military send him, or is this just some guy with a spacesuit and a Geiger counter waiting for a moment like this? You right. know, like yeah. we had no idea. You know, it was just like you didn't think to ask. It was just like this was bigger than all of us. Mm. And uh, I was down there from 1:30 in the afternoon. I didn't go home till five, six o'clock the next morning. Was back the next day at 5:30. Rinse and repeat for days. Um, then they pulled us out, and then they would. They 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 were pretty good about that. About our exposure down there, like we'd be down there for a week, then they'd pull us. Mm. And since I was in auto theft, when they first start, when to get the debris out of there, when they started coming in with the cranes and the heavy equipment, um, that stuff was going out to um, a landfill in Staten Island that had been closed for decades. They, they reopened it. So they had us out there. So many cars were destroyed. They were having us chop the cars open to see if there were people trapped in them. Cannot even imagine. Oh, it was wild. Like, just the first day, like, you're walking around down there, and there's, like, a TV set and somebody's wedding photo. I yeah. mean, it was just, yeah, it was just 
random discriminative stuff. Yeah. And I remember the closer we got to it, you could see the facade. Mm. And I was like, I just can't believe it's like it's like you're a child seeing something that's just bigger than you. You can't wrap your head right. around it. Yeah. Just like, how surreal did the, yeah. and yeah, how did that I I mean oof. Well Wanna was... hear another story? All right. All right, so the guy last night in Magician <laughs> Saved My Life, I worked with him later on. Like, yeah. we were always friends, and then we wound up working together, the guy called Cancer. So when <laughs> N- NY, no, Grand Theft Auto, my, so we do a search warrant at this mobster's place out in Queens. And it, w- it was like a multi, it was like a big case, so we're hitting, like, each team was assigned, like, a different junkyard and body shop. So we're in this mobster's you know, junkyard, and when we find a, a hand grenade in a shoebox, right? So my old partner who's in the military is like, yeah, this is a pineapple, probably Vietnam era. And he's walking around with him like, would you put that fucking thing down? No. And he goes out the back. I go, what are you going to do with it? He goes, I'm going to pull the pin and throw it in Jamaica Bay. You had to know the place at the time. In Willits Point, the mob owned that place. Like, you couldn't open up a body shop glass place without the mafia letting you in and running it. So I'm sure things have exploded in Jamaica Bay before. Yeah. No one's ever going to... Is it Jamaica Bay? It's right in back of Shea Stadium. I'm a Bronx guy, so someone's going to probably say, that's not Jamaica Bay, but whatever. <laughs> he was going to throw the grenade in the water. And I said, you know, I says, he go, I says, he goes, I was in the military. I know what this is. I go, you were a cook in the military. You're not a demolitions expert. Why? Before you blow your hand off, I go, this is what we're going to do. Put the, put the hand grenade back. Let's tell the lieutenant... He's going to call the bomb squad. They love that shit. They're going to show up with all their toys. We're going to make, you know how much overtime we're going to make with this shit? You throw the <laughs> grenade, kaboom. You're talking another four or five hours overtime. He goes like, oh, okay. He puts the hand grenade back in the shoebox. I tell the lieutenant, he goes, where the fuck is this thing? I go in the office. Backs up. The next thing you know, I'm like, what did we just start? Like, there's helicopters flying. The Mm-mm. news is showing up. The bomb squad shows. The bomb squad guy shows up in one of those anteater costumes that they wear, you know. <laughs> He's coming out with the shoebox with the grenade. He puts it in that beehive thing, and it goes fucking roaring off to Rodman's neck. And it was an active grenade. Mm-hmm. But, like, yeah, he was going to throw it in Jamaica Bay. And, like, <laughs> I was like, I think we can do better than that. I, I just think I think we can do better. <laughs> That's hilarious. All right. I do think we're out of time. Okay. Um, Tyler, are we? Are we? We're okay. Okay. All right. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. The easiest place to get your books is on Amazon. Yes. Clearly, you're very entertaining. Um, Thank you. So our listeners can download or buy from Amazon. Vic Ferrari, he's got five books out. And uh, go buy them, all of them, download them, Kindle, whatever the iPad is these days of the young kids. Um, so thank you for being here. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was been a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun, very entertaining, and uh, awesome. Peace out. <laughs>